Amen. First John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies themselves as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. God's word from 1 John 2 and 3. Um, Melissa Green tells a story of a Romanian orphan, Isidore Ruckel, in her article in July 2020, Atlantic. Isidore was one of thousands, I think we have a picture to show, one of thousands of children's, uh, children abandoned to the brutal orphanages in the 1980s under the reign of uh, the Communist Socialist Republic of Romania. The West was introduced to the horrific networks of gulags when the reign of Nicolae Ceausescu was overthrown and journalists were allowed in back in the 90s. They found children caged and treated like animals who, whose bodies appeared as stunted skeletons caked in human waste with hollow eyes, mumbling baby talk and grunts, although seven or eight years old. Isidore was one who was there because he had polio. His parents had abandoned him in their poverty and help helplessness, and he was one of the smart ones, one of the older ones, so that when the journalists came in and when the American adoption agencies started coming in, Isidore was the spokesman, and he was like the mayor of the orphanage, something uh, like something out of Dickens' novel, but much worse. He caught the attention of the adoption director and soon found himself adopted in America, part of the Ruckel family. Uh, Danny and, and Marlis Ruckel were wonderful parents. They had three biological children. They adopted Isidore and hoped that he would make the transition from living as an orphan to living as a well-adjusted, secure, and successful life. Many of the orphans, actually, the majority of the orphans from Romania, though treated so harshly, so horrifically, did make that transition. Many learned what it meant to be loved, to be included, to be part of a family. But Isidore struggled. It might have been because he was older, 
He had kind of figured out the system of the orphanage somehow, and he was used to it. So things went from bad to worse, and eventually at 18, Isidore moved out from his family. He traveled back to Romania to find his biological family, and actually this is all uh, on documentaries you can watch. They made a documentary out of that experience. It did not go well. There was much emotion in meeting his family, and that, if you have the, the do you have the video, the picture to show? There's a picture of his family there. There was much emotion in meeting his family, um, but, but it, it didn't work out because uh, soon he realized that his family was more interested in taking advantage of his American citizenship than actually loving him as a member of the family. Now at the age of 40, the lower right there, Isidore remains isolated and struggling. He's learned to love his American family more, but he doesn't understand what it is to be part of a family. He is a man without a family. I tell this story because it illustrates something that's true for all of us. We are meant to be part of a family. Human beings are meant to be part of a family, and when we can't find our place in a family, like Isidore, we're alone and confused and lost. And our text today speaks to this truth and it speaks to the ultimate family we're called to belong to. We are given a true family in God the Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. God Himself gives us a true family. We are children of God. If we have come to put our faith in Christ, we are actually sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. We are part of an eternal family full of love and goodness. And, and that's what this passage is about. The Isidore in all of us finds a home in the family of God as His children. So I just want to take time to go through this passage and point these things out that we can see how it talks about this. There are four things I want to talk about. First, just that we are children of God. Second, that we're children of righteousness. Uh, third, that we're children unlike the devil. And finally, we're children awaiting God's appearing. These are all directly from the text here. So first, we are children of God. This passage is brimming with statements about being God's children. Um, there are ten times the word child or born is used in this short passage. John uses these terms to communicate the reality that we are his children. We are little children or dear children. Uh, John uses that term. And then he says something very profound really at the core of this particular point in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Now, I love the English Standard Version, but sometimes it's just a little too formal in its English because we don't speak like that, right? I don't see, say, see what kind of this, you know, and for this is what we are. I don't speak like that. There's more vernacular when we speak. So let me retranslate this a little bit, a little more in the vernacular. Actually, the New Living Translation does a good job, but this is my own version. I would put it this way. Wow! Check out how astounding the love of the Father is that He's given to us guys. That we should actually be called God's own children. Can you believe it? It's for real. That's maybe a better translation in our vernacular. And actually the Greek has that feeling in it. There's these certain words that John uses that convey this sense of like, 
wow, this is beyond what you would imagine or you would expect. So see what kind of love. That's an that's a exclamatory phrase is what it is. It's wow, check it out. That's what John is saying. And then at the end it says, and so we are. And that, that's just not, it's like, it's like, can you believe it? It's for real. That's what John's saying. And this is at the heart of this passage, this truth. And it's at the heart of the Christian faith that we are so loved by the Father that we are made His children. And it is who we are. It's at the core of our identity. It's the greatest reality we could experience to be counted as His sons and daughters and be loved by Him. It's an amazing type of love. It's beyond comprehension. And we should always be saying, wow, check it out! Because of how great it is. Now, if you're like me, you don't get up every morning and say, wow, check it out. And if you're like me, there's a lot of times when you just don't quite get it and you might be like, yeah, well, yeah, I know. Been there, done that. God's child, he loves me. And I think there's a couple reasons why we don't grasp it. Um, why we may not take it for granted. I think in our culture, we have a very high view of people and a very, fairly low view of God. And so we're not that impressed that God would love us. Well, of course God loves us. My grandmother loves me. Of course God's going to love me too. And, and that's how we tend to look at, at this. So we're not too impressed. But, but we get things wrong with that. We, we, we don't grasp just the magnitude of what it means um, for God to love us because we have too high a view of ourselves and, and too low a view of God. We fail to see how amazing it is that our glorious and mighty God would love us. I think first we have to understand just how great God is. Part of the equation is understanding how great God is. Because if you want to know how much He loves us, it really is related to how great He is in His holiness and how needy we are. And the fact that He bridges that gap. So if we can understand the gap there between His greatness and our neediness, our lowliness compared to Him, we'll, we'll better understand how amazing it is that He loves us. So first, who is God? What is He like? He is not like you and me. He's not like my grandmother. He is infinitely glorious. Perfectly holy. He created all things. He sustains all things. All things exist through Him. Nothing exists apart from Him. You, right now, because you are exist, you are sustained by God Himself. Everything that goes on in, in creation is a constant work of God in His sustenance, in His care, in His oversight. He runs everything. And without Him, nothing would happen. And in His running of everything, He's always good. He's always giving us the things that we need. He's always there for us. He created all things. He sustains all things. He fills all of creation, and yet creation cannot contain Him. He's infinite in His intellect, infinite in His power, infinite and perfect in His purity, and He's infinite in His glory. He dwells in unapproachable light. We will never know Him fully because the vastness of His glory. He's spotless. He's faultless in His moral being. He only and always is and does goodness. He is actually the originator and the definition of goodness. It comes from Him. Just think of what's going on in the throne room as there are visions at times, and uh, two times in particular in Scripture, of the throne room. 
There are these mighty angels, the seraphim. And just to see a regular angel would terrify you. Nobody ever says, oh, what a cute angel. They always say, oh, no. They, they, they faint. They, they are fearful. So any angel would be terrifying. These angels are mighty angels. Glorious six-winged angels with eyes all around them as they behold the glory of God. Yet they have to cover their eyes. They cover their feet for for humility and holiness. And they fly with their wings and they say day and night, never stopping, holy, holy, holy is the Lord who was and is and is to come. They behold God at a level that we don't normally. And they can't help but cry out day and night for eternity. From the time they were created forever, it is their joy and their privilege to cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And they cannot, they cannot see Him in the fullness of His glory. This is who He is. This is who God is in His holiness and His greatness. No one can, can approach Him in His fullness of His glory. And then there's you and me. Yes, we are lovable in the sense that we're made in the image of God. There's something beautiful and noble there for sure. and We should not and must never diminish that. But we have been corrupted. This image has been marred. We all suffer the marks of our willful rebellion. We're not lovable in that sense. There are some very dark recesses of all of our souls. There are evil things that lurk within. There are things about us that are the polar opposite of God and His goodness. We are very unlike God in some horrific and horrible ways. The law of God is given to us to help us identify these things and to curb them and to get help for them. The law of God is good so we can just simply do a quick run through the Ten Commandments to evaluate ourselves to get a better sense of who we are. So let's just do that, starting with number 10 and working our way up back to, up to the, the first commandments. Number 10, we live in covetousness. We are ever wanting to have what others have. If the others didn't have it, we probably would be fine. But it's them having it that makes us want to have it. And it can be all sorts of things. We can covet we can cover it, their possessions. We can live in envy or jealousy. We can cover it, their income, their clothing, their cars, their status, or their spouse. We cover it. God is ever giving, ever gracious, ever sacrificing and loving. He doesn't covet like that. We lie. We lie when it serves the moment. When it serves ourselves, we lie, we compromise the truth at times. We shade the truth. We spin things to get the upper hand, to represent ourselves in the best way. We compromise the truth without regard for how it undermines others and how it undermines society. We take stuff that's not ours. It doesn't have to be grand theft. It can just be, oh, finders keepers. Somebody left us here, too bad, it's mine now. The idea of taking from others. 
We pursue illicit sex, either in fantasy or reality. And we thus violate the very image of God in others and in ourselves. We murder. Most commonly, it's murder from our hearts, hating those who oppose us, murdering them in in our hearts. We rebel against our parents and our own pride and self-sufficiency. We fail to honor those who are meant to be means of grace to us. Worst of all, in the Ten Commandments, instead of loving God, depending on Him, delighting in Him, rejoicing in Him, we exchange Him for stuff. We say, God, we don't care that You made everything. We don't want You. We just want Your stuff. And we rebel against God and we blaspheme God. Taking the things that are meant to be enjoyed for His sake and making them our God. Making them the things we live for. Whether it be possessions or people. We abuse God most of all. I know it's not pleasant and I take no joy in this. But the law of God is a perfect mirror. And it reveals who we are. And we need to see who we are. Because that's the only way we're going to get help. To one degree or another, we are all under rightful condemnation by the good law of God. And so the distance between who God is and us is really infinite. It's an infinite gap. All other qualifiers being assumed, nevertheless, it is an infinite gap between us and God and His goodness and glory. And that gap is bridged by His love alone. And His love for you is not generated because you are lovable. Again, you're made in the image of God and there's that aspect. God loves all humanity in that way. But His love, His redeeming love, His rescuing love, the love that bridges that gap is not from you, it's from Him alone. It's because of who He is. Because of His great mercy and grace. He loves to be merciful. He loves to be gracious. And He chooses to love you. He chooses to love you despite yourself. Oh, what good news that is. His love is from everlasting too. If you are in Jesus, you can know for sure that you are there because He loved you before anything got started. and He chose to rescue you. He determined He would before time began. It's a mystery, it's hard to understand, and if you are not yet a believer, it doesn't mean you're excluded from that. The answer for you is very simple. It's the same answer for all of us. Run to this love that is offered you in Christ and receive it. Then you can know it is yours and it has been yours. He has loved His people from before time. He has bridged this infinite gap and it cost Him greatly. It cost Him His own Son, God the Son, God in the flesh, living the life we were supposed to live. Being righteous in His life, being good in His life, always loving His Father and loving others perfectly. And then offering up that righteous life on the cross in your place to pay the just penalty you and I deserve. In a just universe, at the hands of a just God, sin must be dealt with. And He dealt with it in Christ. He punished God. Christ righteously. Not capriciously. Not going off the handle, but in perfect holy justice. He poured out justice on Christ. 
that you deserve to pay, that I deserve to pay, so that He could forgive you freely and fully, not, not freely in the sense Christ paid for it, but generously given, and fully, and that in Him you could be reconciled and made a child of God. And so that vastness between the holiness of God and who we are, it, that gap is bridged by His love, and that's why John can say, check out how great the love of the Father is for us, that we should be called children of God. Behold what manner. This is who we are. This is real. That's the wonder behind this. And so how do we live in that place of wonder? We rehearse these truths. We remember these truths. We rehearse the reality that God is perfectly holy and, and glorious and unapproachable in His glory and perfection. We are sinners who need rescue. And He has bridged that in Jesus. He has loved us from before time began and sent Christ. So we rehearse the good news. We rehearse the love of God in this. We rehearse the reality, the, the truths behind it and this gap. And we remind each other of this. And then we together can say, Behold, how much He loves us. That we can call ourselves children of God. Secondly, I think sometimes we're like Isidore. And it's hard for us to accept it. And we're more comfortable living as orphans. There can be lots of reasons for this. It can be because you didn't understand what love was growing up. Love in your family was more about acceptance if you did this. I'm happy with you if you do all this stuff. I love you if you do this. So it wasn't really love. It was merit. And if you live there long enough, well, either you'll keep on striving and work yourself to death in it, or you'll rebel. And perhaps when I say these things about the love of God, that's what you're thinking about God. That, yep, been there, know that. I know that drill. He loves me. So if I do X, Y, and Z, I'll still be okay with Him. But that's not the love of God. The love of God is not based on your performance. We're going to get into the rest of the text, and your performance and behavior does matter, but it's the other way around here in Scripture and everywhere in Scripture. He loves you first when you were not worthy of that love. And your acceptance is not because you do well enough for Him to be happy with you today. Yes, we can please Him in our actions and that's important. But the ground is not our performance. It's the ground is... is Christ's performance on your behalf, but even before that, the ground is His eternal love for you, which is unmerited and everlasting. He set His affection on you, and He therefore determined that He would perform in your stead in the, in, as Jesus in the flesh. And then He determined that in time, God the Spirit would bring these truths to bear, where you would understand it, your eyes would be opened. And so your ground is not what you do. It's what He has done. Salvation is of God alone. Not of you. So what do you do with that? You have to keep on soaking in that truth and telling yourself what's true and stop doing the Isidore thing. Thinking 
God is somehow different. Somehow God is like maybe your family or some other context. He's not. And if that were the case, you could never earn His affection. He gives it freely through Christ and through simple faith in Christ. It's wondrous. It's grace. It's a gift given that we didn't deserve just simply through receiving, turning away from self and sin to Him and receiving that gift. And so by these truths, we can understand His love and what it is to be His children. The Spirit is so interested, by the way, in making this truth known to you. It says in Romans 8, I won't get into it here, but the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are His children. And He testifies in a way that that it says, Abba, Father, in the original language. Again, a better translation is, Dad, Father. And may the Spirit of God, as we talk about these things, even now, be speaking to your heart and testifying to your spirit that you are beloved and you are safe and secure in the family. Next, we are children of righteousness. This new relationship we have as children of God changes us in a powerful way. We are children of righteousness. John says in chapter 3, verse 9, I think it is, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. This is so important to understand, and it flows right from what we were just talking about. You might look at it and think, okay, here comes the requirements. And yes, but no. Because what John's saying is, because you're in the family, you've been born of God. God has worked in you something miraculous. By the Spirit of God, God's seed abides in you. God's God's presence by His Spirit and the Word of God is in you. And He's made you a new creation now. There's something radically different. You're not just a sinner. You're a saint. You're not just one who has the corrupt nature in you. You have a new nature dwelling in you. And you have new motivations. You have new abilities to perceive the Word of God and the truth of God and the love of God. You have new abilities to obey Him. His seed is in you. So don't you see there the ground of our obedience is not you, but the seed of God that's in you. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in Him and He cannot keep on sinning because He has been born of God. What what good news. Now, We've learned earlier in 1 John that believers sin, right? We saw that earlier. As a matter of fact, it's, it's a heresy to say they don't. And thus, we need to come to the light. And thus, we need to remember the advocate we have. So that's reality. So it isn't that, sinners, that, that children of God don't sin. We don't make a practice of sinning. There's a difference in the, the regularity and the persistence of it. And even the orientation in it for the believer You might sin, but there's something in you saying, I don't want to do this. I need help. I want to be rescued. I want to stop. There's that motivation. There's that, the presence of God in you saying, no, I want to obey. And so we'll be conflicted if we dabble in sin as believers. That's an important thing to see. But our hope is in the the presence of God, the seed of God in us. Our confidence And our ability to sustain obedience cannot be in ourselves apart from God's grace in us. And I hope you hear that. 
Because I think sometimes, I know for me, I do this at times, I live in this place of, of a desperate, pursuit, a desperate pursuit to avoid my sin that it is based on my own efforts and it just creates anxiety, creates legalism. It doesn't work. But you can live there and, and, and your Christian life is not a very happy life because it's always a battle that you have to win somehow. And there is battle in the Christian life. But First John teaches us it's the presence of the power of God in us. The reality that we are forgiven and beloved in Christ that gives us that ability to win this battle. It's not in yourself, so your confidence mustn't be in yourself, but in God in you. And if He is in you, He will work where you will not keep on sinning. You will come back. You will repent and come back. That's how you know a genuine believer. They don't keep on sinning. They turn. They will come back and they will, they will come back to the light and come back and to fellowship and walk with God. They won't keep on sinning because God is in them. They cannot meet, do this. Now, John is saying this for a number of reasons as he relates to this church in Asia Minor. We've talked about this before. There's a heretical group that's gone out from the church and they are saying things. They're advocating a false Jesus who isn't fully God and fully man. They're denying the need for atonement for our sins, for sins to be paid for. They're denying the uh, importance of actual, actual obedience or loving other Christians. And so John wants them to, re- to realize, wants the church to realize, guys, those aren't real Christians. Real Christians will demonstrate a family resemblance because they belong to the family of God. And so you'll see in this section these statements about God, His righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, that he, the fact that He came to rescue us from our sin. And so if you're a member of this family, you will have a, bear a family resemblance. There will be a life that demonstrates love for God and love for others. Now, it's not a perfect life. But there won't be a life that is predominantly defined by sin against God and against others if you are a genuine believer. That's one of the points he's making. But he also wants the believers to be encouraged to, to recognize that, that this power comes from God in them. Because the seed is in them. They've been born again into the, this new family. They are children of God. And therefore, they can be encouraged that their lives are going to demonstrate the fruit of this. There's a third aspect here that I, I think we should get that I, I think is really important. It is a lesson on the nature of who we are as believers. Because we have the, the Spirit of God in us, we mustn't dabble in sin. Sin is contrary to our nature and our new creation. And the most miserable type of people in the world are Christians who are dabbling in sin. Because you're not doing what you really want to do, but you kind of want to do it, but you don't want to do it. And you'll never be happy. And I think the sooner you get that, the better. The sooner we all get that, the better. I, some years ago, I was involved in a church discipline situation. That's, church discipline is just basically where you confront somebody, who, a Christian who's seriously con- compromised in a way that's destructive to them and to others. And we were just confronting this. It was a, a, a single sister who was living with a married man. And, and she was in this place. She was miserable. But she wouldn't repent and move out. And in the course of the conversation, I, just, I said to her, you know what? You're never going to be happy. This is never going to work for you. 
There's no happiness here. You might think there's, if I could just do this or if I could have this, I'll be happy. You're never going to be happy. And so the sooner you realize that, the better. And thank God she responded to all of our counsel and, and she left this man and, and she's doing great. Um, last I knew. Understanding that it's so important. Um, it's, I, I thought it's kind of like um, if you have celiac disease. Um, it's a condition, right, where your, your body, there's an autoimmune response to gluten, right? And if somebody has that and, and you're with them and you know they have it and they're like, they're just eating pancakes and, and sandwiches with bread and everything, um, you know what's going to happen, right? And if the, the person's like, yeah, I'm just, I don't feel too well. It's like, well, duh, you're eating gluten. You shouldn't do gluten. Well, for you as a believer, you have something new in you. It's a positive thing. There's new life in you where you are allergic to sin, to living apart from God because of his activity in you. So, duh, don't do sin. And you'll find your life fuller and more fruitful. That's what John is getting at. It's just part of being part of the family. Um, third point, and I'll go through these remaining ones quickly. We are children of God. We are um, children of this new creation of righteousness. We are children unlike the devil. So a big part of what he's saying here is he's contrasting the children of God with children of the devil. He says in verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Um, so there's those who practice righteousness and those who don't. Those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. It certainly appears very clearly that John is saying there's two choices, basically. Child of God or child of the devil. You're either living in love for God and for others, or you're not. Now, this doesn't mean that every person is the worst they could be, but, but fundamentally, if they're not in the family of God, there's not this love filling their hearts in this way for God and for others. And so there are two choices, and so John is contrasting these, and he's trying to help the, the church understand what's going on with this group that has left them. They are aligning themselves with the devil, with sin. And the, and the devil's been sinning from the beginning, and so those who follow him have a family resemblance with him. And sin, he says, is lawlessness. Sin is rejecting the good law of God. This is interesting here because there's another subtle temptation I think that can come in. It can be this subtle temptation to think that the law somehow can be disregarded. Now that we belong to Jesus, now that we're forgiven, He's fulfilled the law. He's our righteousness, right? So who needs the law? It's all grace. I can do what I want. Well, yes and no, you, you can't do what you want because you have the Spirit of God in you. You've died with Christ. You've been raised to life. And the law now is a wonderful instrument in your life to show you what that life looks like. To show you what it doesn't look like and show you what it looks like. And so law is just the details of, the, of loving God and loving others. And so don't be deceived to think that somehow we don't need the law. That's a, actually a demonic thing. Lawlessness is demonic. That's part of what he's saying here. And so we have this family that we're invited into and this family of God that we can live in instead of the family of the devil. Finally, we are children awaiting his appearing. John mentions uh, four times in this passage the word appearing. God has already appeared in Jesus to destroy the works of the devil. 
He's now going to appear next to judge all mankind, to bring all things to a close, to vanquish all evil, rewarding the faithful and punishing the faithless. Everyone is accountable to God in Christ. He is the King of kings. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to Him through His his, uh, nature as God, the reality of Him being God, the Son, but also through His righteous life and His victory over sin and death. And He will judge all mankind and His judgment will be perfectly just and right. There will be no injustice. There will be no cruel and unusual punishment. Everything will be fitting perfectly. Nothing swept under the rug. All mankind will give an answer to Him. And for us as children, our status as children affects us in a couple ways. First, we are part of the family. We are made in his, uh, remade in His image in this way. There's love for Him. That we are children of righteousness. And so our confidence is there, but we are part of walking that out as we choose to abide in Him. We're either choosing to abide in Him or we're wandering off to dabble in sin. Those are really the two choices for us. And so, at the very beginning, the first verse we read talks about abiding in Him so you're not ashamed at His coming. So the reality is that you can be a son or daughter through Christ, beloved, and safe and secure in that, but still ashamed at His coming because you spent your time dabbling. And so what this passage is saying is don't do that. Abide in Him. Run back to the light. Remember Christ. Get with your brothers and sisters. So abiding is not just simply uh, reading your Bible and praying. As important as that is, that's part of it. It's also being connected to a local church and having genuine friendships in that local church where you can walk together in the light and strengthen each other and abide. That's what's going to help you resist dabbling and resist thinking that that former way of life is something good to follow. So we must abide But the second aspect of his appearing, he talks about later in this passage, in uh, verse 2 and 3 of chapter 3, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Interesting. What we will be has not yet appeared. Well, it has, but it hasn't, because we know its seed is in us. We're new creations, right? This is righteousness in us, but the fullness of that is not yet appeared. But we know, he goes on, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The fullness of beholding him in his glory and goodness will transform us to be in his image. And then he goes on to say, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So this anticipation of his reappearing Reminds us that when He reappears, we'll be fully made in His image. What good news. No more sin. No more struggle. No more temptation. No more dabbling. Just free to love Him and love one another perfectly. We'll be like Jesus in the fullness of that. And then He says, everyone who has this hope in Him purifies themselves as He is pure. That's important. The purifying of yourself is actually not a passive thing. So it isn't just like, I have hope and it just happens. Actually, it's an active word here purifies. And what it is saying is everyone who has this hope, everyone who's looking forward to becoming fully like Him will work now to purify Himself. Will work now to put away sin. Will work now to say no to the old nature. Will work now to stop depending on themselves. Will work now to depend on Christ and abide and become more and more like Jesus. 
will work towards that final destination. That's what John's saying. And so we are children awaiting his appearance eagerly, eager to become like him. If I were to tell you, somehow I knew that 10 years from now, you would be an expert mountain climber. You'd be like that uh, free solo guy. You'll be climbing El Capitan, and you're going to be amazing. I know it may be far-fetched, but say I knew that. Wouldn't you be a little motivated to maybe start doing some finger push-ups? Maybe lose a little bit of weight? Kind of start making your way towards being that mountain climber? Maybe something that's more relatable. I, if I told you in 10 years, you're going to have a cooking show that, on YouTube that will have 2 million followers, and you're going to be amazing. Wouldn't you be motivated maybe to clean up the kitchen a little more, get some more cups, you know, and utensils or whatever for your kitchen to take some steps towards that? Yes? Does that make sense? Yes. The point in the passage, that's what John's saying, is guys, you have this destination. You're going to be like Jesus. This is where you're headed. Therefore, start working on it now because that's where you're going. You're free, you're forgiven, you're beloved, and this is where you're going. So take steps to start becoming like that. This should motivate us, these things. So this passage is wonderfully helpful as we need to understand what it is to be children of God. We're all meant for a family. We're meant for God's family. He loves us. Amazing love we can live in. We have this new nature living in righteousness. We are unlike the devil in his ways. And we are now living and ready for his appearing, ever eager to become more and more like him. Let me ask you in closing, is there anything in this passage that God is calling you to respond to? Is there anything in your diet, to use the celiac illustration, that you need to get rid of? Is there anything that you need to believe and live around? Is there any practice? Um, don't try to think of ten different things. Think of one thing. So just take a moment as we transition. Um, as Pastor Toby comes up. Um, just to be quiet before the Lord and say, Lord, what is one way I can respond to your word? God bless you as you meditate on his word.